Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. In the past few weeks, you've seen a little bit of caution in equities, not so much in credit. In fact, investors are earning close to the lowest extra premium to own junk bonds in the U.S. relative to treasuries since 2007. Here to talk with us about that and when this could potentially shift is Srini Dulipala. Dulipala. Correct? That's right. Okay. Chief Investment Officer and founder of Kildenan Castle Asset Management in New York. Srini, thank you so much for being here. What do you make of this? Why is there such a risk on environment right now? Uh, First of all, thanks for having me over, Lisa. It's great to be here. Um, You know, I think this trend kind of started really, um, you know, post the financial crisis when basically the global central banks, uh, you know, effectively moved rates from what were basically neutral rates of around 5% all the way to like negative interest rates. And that level of liquidity in the market um, just effectively caused this huge inflow into fixed income assets and as a corollary into the high yield market. And that has effectively been playing out to this day. Um, You know, obviously, um, you know, the Fed, uh, a tailwind doesn't exist anymore. Um, And, you know, these types of, uh, these type of, uh, Changes uh, occur, you know, uh, they they meander uh, till there is a final cathartic event that causes uh, a shift to current uh, to happen. So at this time, um, you know, it is, uh, you know, it, it's it's to me, it's very very surprising that spreads are holding where they are. Um, uh, my guess, if I had to say something positive about the credit markets, uh, what I would say is the fundamentals underlying the market are actually pretty good. What about the negative? Uh, I think the biggest negative is really valuations. Um, you know, you are, uh, so to kind of put numbers on to kind of what you said at, at the beginning, uh, high yield markets are trading at a spread of about 360 basis points over treasuries. That is, as you very well mentioned, like close to the all-time tights, which was back, basically back in 2007. The difference between 2007 and now is rather marked. Uh, the biggest being, you know, the corporations are no longer as levered as they were back then. Uh, you know, you actually have a pretty robust economy. You know, global economy is growing at, I think the last time I checked IMF forecast, they've been kind of, they keep ticking it up. It's at about 3.9% now. Uh, you know, investors are no longer all that leveraged either. So back in the day, you had banks that were very leveraged. You had hedge funds that were carrying 30 times to one leverage. Um so those are the positives. Uh, and as a result, I would expect, uh, you know, all in coupon yields for corporates have also kind of gone down a lot. So in terms of interest coverage, the, 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 the corporates look reasonably healthy. Um, and, you know, because of the underlying economy, I would say that the default rates will be reasonably lower. So that's the positive. And that, that would probably explain why spreads trade where they do. Okay, I'm assuming there's a negative here. No, I think the biggest negative, as I said, is valuations. Um, you know, at 360 basis points over treasuries, you're just not getting paid enough okay. to own 
Hold on, on one second. Yep. If I were hearing you right now, I would yep. say this is a bullish person who sees very limited downside because uh, it seems like a positive backdrop, but a problem with valuations. Would that be accurate? No, I would say I'm uh, actually the absolute opposite. Uh, this is the most cautious I have been about credit, um, you know, for the simple reason. So, like, let's just step back. Like, you know, what is a bond? A bond has two components to it. Bond has an interest rate component and a spread component. The spread component is effectively the risk component. And what we just discussed, the fundamentals that are good, kind of explain why the spread component is trading at all-time tights. And I think at this point, it's kind of capped. Uh, this is the all-time tights, and sure enough, you know, the fundamentals look good. But the bigger issue with credit is the interest rate component. Over the last 35 years, we've seen nothing but this uninterrupted rally in treasuries, which has been the biggest tailwind to owning high yield. Uh, we, as, as a portfolio manager, I never really had to think about rates as a risk. This is really the first time in a very, very long time that rate component is the one that is going to basically be the biggest risk for our markets. So if I want to like expand a little more into it, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, very simply speaking, why do I feel negative about credit? High yield credit yields roughly around six and a quarter percent. Three month LIBOR yields two and a quarter percent, two and two point three percent. You now actually have a tremendous competition from cash substitute instruments for uh, you know rather than owning high yield. So I think the biggest risk to high yield I feel is liquidity risk. Um, you know I think. Uh, over the last five to six years, there's been a big proliferation of passive money, you know, long only. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about ETFs, they're a small percentage of the market, but overall about half the market has a daily liquidity to it. Um, and as a result, I feel like the next crisis is not going to be an 08 type of crisis. Uh, you know, we're not going to have a spike in defaults. Uh, the big worry is what is that interest rate where people actually start to say, you know what, um, I'm just not getting paid enough to be in high yield and I want to move out. If an investor hears what you're saying and buys your thesis and agrees also with Jamie Dimon in his annual letter to shareholders in which he said that interest rates may go higher and faster than people expect, what do you do right now? I think, um, you know... Uh, couple of things. So uh, one of the things you can do is effectively go into low duration instruments. Unfortunately, one of the beautiful things about, you know, this low interest rate environment we've had in high yield is companies have uh, been able to term out their debt. So there's not a load, lot of low duration instruments left. But I think this is as good as it gets for the for the medium term for term loans. Uh, you know, what, what used to be something. So if you are talking about an environment where, um, um, you know, where default rates are going to be low, um, you know, uh, a lot of the term loans, uh, higher quality term loans that really did not afford you good amount of yield, actually pay you some some yield to own. So those, those look fine. Uh, but more importantly, I think, I don't mean to be completely negative on uh, corporate credit and high yield. Um, what has happened as a result of uh, a lot of proliferation of indexed money into this uh, in, into the market is you now have a market which is bifurcated between haves and have-nots. The very liquid credit, I think I, I would avoid. But one has to also accept that there is a small subset of the market which focuses on mid-cap uh, corporate credit, 
which is generally under underappreciated and underowned, uh, where you can find a lot of value. And you know, I think on the long side, that's kind of what we prefer. And yeah. this one last thing, a plug about what I do. What I will say is, this is as good an environment as I have seen for long short credit managers. So you can be risk neutral uh, and really make. Uh, what I would consider to be well above market returns without taking too much risk. I want to thank you very much for coming in and sharing your experience and your knowledge. Ashwini Dulipala, founder of the credit hedge fund Kildonan Castle Asset Management. Much appreciated. A hundred million people, can they be wrong? Well, they're spending $100 uh, a year in order to be Amazon Prime subscribers. Shira Oviday, Bloomberg Gadfly technology columnist, may indeed be one of them. Uh, Shira, uh, what do you make of this revelation that a hundred million Prime subscribers are uh, filling the coffers of Amazon with $10 billion a year for the privilege of shopping? So it wasn't really surprised by the number, but I was surprised that Amazon disclosed the number. So let me break that down. So Amazon for more than a year now has been uh, disclosing the revenue it generates from Amazon Prime and and its other subscription products like Audible um, subscription models and things like that. And thanks to that number, which Amazon was essentially forced to reveal because the SEC has been pressuring them to disclose the number of Prime members, and Amazon has refused to do so in, uh, until recent until it, it gave the revenue disclosure. So analysts have been able to kind of back out the approximate number of Amazon Prime members, and it's been pretty close to 100 million if you look at the numbers. The question for me again is, why did Amazon pick now of all times to disclose finally after years of silence? Uh, how many Prime members it really has. And I'm curious to know the answer and, and don't have one. Another number that Amazon disclosed that you wrote about is one that is less talked about, and that is the median salary of people who work for Amazon. It is less than $30,000. What does this do to the narrative that Amazon is creating high-quality jobs around the country? Look, I think it's a great question, and, and there's been questions for a long time that a lot of the jobs that Amazon has created, and to be fair, this company has hired hundreds of thousands of people in the last few years, but there's been a big question about whether a lot of those jobs are quality lasting jobs, right? In Amazon, um, those package sorting centers or package warehouses that are dotted across the country, uh, there have been you know, reports about bad job conditions and 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 low pay for long hours and other ill treatment of workers. So yeah, the revelation that the the median uh, compensation of an Amazon employee is less than twenty nine thousand uh, dollars. That's an interesting piece of that debate uh, about whether Amazon. Amazon creates jobs that are good jobs. Sure. Just a back-of-the-envelope estimate. If you have uh, 100 million subscribers to Amazon Prime paying $100 a year, that's $10 billion. If you have 125 million people for Netflix uh, paying 120 a year, that's about a $15 billion. Spotify, uh, seven, I believe it's 70 million subscribers uh, paying, what, maybe 100 a year for uh Let's call it a hundred year for, for Spotify. That's another seven billion. That's thirty-two billion dollars for people to just get entertainment. Uh, 
is that enough to sustain the the valuations of these businesses? Well, I mean, look, of those companies that you mentioned, uh, you know, Amazon does not generate the biggest chunk of its revenue from subscriptions, right? That um, Prime is sort of this uh, genius idea uh, that Costco also uses, right, where you pay a company for the privilege of spending more money at the company throughout the year. Um, Amazon Web Services, though, and things yes. like uh, advertising yeah. potentially for Amazon. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, Net- Netflix and Spotify are both highly valued companies that exist only on subscriptions. And look, the business model of cable and telecom companies is also to sell subscriptions. And those are, again, some of the largest um, and and companies in the world and also highly profitable. So, uh, yeah, you can sell subscriptions to things, whether it's entertainment or telecom services, and that is a very viable business for a lot of companies. So uh, just to put this into perspective, Amazon shares today up one and a half percent following gains in the past three sessions. Not so uh, happy over in Apple land. And I do want to touch on this because this is catching a lot of people's attention, shares down uh, more than two percent. And some people are attributing this to mounting concerns about waning smartphone demand. We talk about this not infrequently. Um, Why are people suddenly worried about this now? Because this has been known forever. Yes, it's a, it's a fair question. I mean, the, the there has been this kind of the same exercise happened before Apple's last earnings report, which was uh, I think there was some over optimism about the sales potentials of the iPhone 10 and other new Apple devices, and then you saw in the weeks before Apple reported December quarter earnings that analysts started to pare back their expectations, and that turned out to be smart. Um, and again, we're seeing a very similar exercise this year. Look. I think everyone in the investment world, if not inside of the Cupertino headquarters of Apple, is coming to realize that this is a new reality for Apple, which is it's getting harder and harder for them to sell more iPhones every year. If you look at the analyst estimates of iPhone sales this year, uh, they're expected to inch up a few percentage points. And remember, this is a year when uh, a year ago, everybody expected there to be this big boon from the iPhone 10 and other new devices that come on the market. That's not going to happen. So there's been this r- r- kind of reimagination of what Apple really is. So it's not a company that is going to uh, rely on growth in unit sales of iPhones. Instead, it's going to need to charge more for those devices. It's going to need to sell ancillary products like the HomePod and the AirPods headphones. And that's the way that Apple is going to keep growing now that the easy growth of I can just sell more iPhones every year, that that story is over. So people are waking up to that and they're getting a little bit nervous or perhaps just shedding some risk ahead of earnings. Yep. Shira Ovide, thank you so much for being with us. We love having you on. Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering all things tech talking about what's going on with Amazon.com. It was surprising how low the median salary was. Less than $29,000 a piece, 59 times less than what Jeff Bezos took home. Definitely interesting. The price of gold, an ounce of gold right now uh, will cost you about $1,344. But what will it cost you, let's say, in the next 12 months? Here to help us understand the uh, ins and outs and the ups and downs of gold is Frank Holmes. He is the chief executive and the chief investment officer for U.S. Global Investors. They are based in San Antonio, Texas. 
But uh, he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Frank, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. I want to just mention also that you helped to manage the Gold and Precious Metals Fund, U-S-E-R-X. Give us your outlook for gold. Well, I think that gold has a high probability of hitting 1500 this year. Uh, and the, the double combo with that, with that fear trade, is just a weaker dollar even though rates have been rising, uh, and that's helping actually fuel global economic growth and is leading to this commodity boom uh, because you're getting this, this great export of our high-end products and using of commodities. And you, the other part of this is the love trade. And you find that when, which is 60% of all demand for gold, and it's highly correlated to the GDP per capita of China and India. And their GDP per capita continues to rise. And this is the year of the dog. And there's going to be lots of little gold puppies purchased. 24 carat. Okay. So people are going to be purchasing gold puppies. Is that the main driver here of the price of gold? Because gold has been a very confusing asset class. And uh, a lot of people have been expecting it to uh, gain as people eye inflation. Now people are ratcheting back inflation expectations. What's the main driver here? Well, the inflation is no doubt an important issue because the concern is that if you use 1990 factors to, to, to look at the cost of inflation, inflation is running at 8%. If you use 1980 prices, inflation is pushing close to 10%. So there's an argument that inflation is actually understated. Uh, and we were just talking about you know, just the cost for cell phones and mobile technology, all this stuff. It's really creeping up much faster than 2.7% or 3.1%. Uh, so I, I think in, in the airlines industry, one reason why I created Jets, because I saw my options to fly had, had fallen by 25%, but my ticket prices went up 300%. Uh, and that's inflationary. So I think that inflation is going to, the, the, I believe the New York Fed has a different inflationary number. It's higher than the CPI number. And I think as people reassess this, the factors behind it, inflation is probably running closer to over 5%. So we actually have real negative interest rates under that scenario. And that bodes well for gold. Frank, uh, I want to cast your mind back. I don't remember you call in 19, I guess it was the mid-1990s, 96. There was something called e-gold. And it's been written about as the precursor to cryptocurrencies. It was basically a, a digital currency that was backed 100% by gold. Governments around the world did not like this. Uh, it, in fact, I believe there was even an a application that was written for the Palm Pilot uh, in order to uh, track uh, e-gold. Do you believe that the, the popularity of uh, cryptocurrencies is having a dampening effect, perhaps even temporarily, on the, on the price of gold? No, I, I don't. I think what's really important in my journey of going into that space, I'm a chairman of Hive Blockchain, first company mining these coins in, uh, in Sweden and Iceland. Uh, and, and I think that, that you saw $5 billion last year go into these new ICOs, uh, and that's speculative money. And the regulatory world has basically said you cannot speculate in the securities market. Uh, you want to speculate, go to casinos, buy lottery tickets, or go to the racetrack. So the millennials, they want to speculate. And that's what that money is. It's really gone into speculation. Uh, and now there's a crackdown taking place because some of the stuff was not full, true, plain and timely disclosure. But I really think that's $5 billion that never went into new exploration for gold or new technology uh, that normally would you see going into the capital markets. I'm just wondering, what would have to happen for you to dramatically change your outlook on gold? 
Well, first of all, stand back at fifty thousand feet. Um, sure, get an uh, airplane gold, from your gold, jets. Gold is, you know, gold has always been I've advocated a ten percent weighting rebalance each year. And why is that? Since the year two thousand, gold is two times the the appreciation of the S and P five hundred. Two times, and last year it was up thirteen percent. That's not bad. So I give you short term or long term. Gold has done what it's supposed to do in an overall portfolio against currency volatility. So from that end, until I see something else take place, I don't think gold is a fourth most liquid uh, asset class traded in the world. Uh, I think that gold has its place in a portfolio, but don't buy gold to get rich. You go and buy it for love, for jewelry, or you buy it for your portfolio because it does mitigate volatility and it de-risks the overall portfolio. What about investing in gold uh, company in companies that have uh, royalty streams uh, from gold? My favorite is a superior business model. I mean, just think of it. Franco Nevada has the royalties on Barrick and Newmont's assets in Nevada, and their revenue per employee is a half a million dollars for for simplicity. And Franco Nevada is twenty one million. I mean, Goldman Sachs is $1 million. So the efficiency ratio is so high, they have uh, very seldom do they have a hit to book value. They pay more dividends, Franco Nevada, than all the, any other gold mining company in the world. So it just goes a superior business model. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thanks very much. Uh, Frank Holmes, he is the uh, chief executive and the chief investment officer for U.S. Global Investors, managing the Gold and Precious Metals Fund, USE. RX. We have heard a lot about possible sanctions on Russia. Will President Trump issue more? Looks like perhaps not. To make uh, some sense of all of this back and forth, I want to bring in Richard Kahn, managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, which is based in New York. And uh, Richard has vast technicals working with Russian businesses and uh, Russian and U.S. alliances. So he is a perfect person to weigh in on this. Uh, does this matter? First, I should ask, should we even be talking about sort of the will will the U.S. or won't the U.S. add sanctions to Russia? Well, uh, thanks, Lisa. I, I think certainly it should be on our minds because it goes to the issues of how we view the, the Trump administration and uh, their relationship with Russia. Um, but I, uh, you know, in my view, that's, uh, if you will, a sideshow to the main events, which relate to investigation, looking for evidence of interference and links and coordination. Uh, with Russia, which is what Mueller is looking at now. Uh, this is potentially, at least in some people's mind, uh, uh, evidence of uh, proclivity to favor Russia and perhaps evidence that Russia remains in a position to affect uh, Trump. Just to be clear, the the fact that President Trump seemingly uh, walked back what Nikki Haley had said earlier about possible additional sanctions, is that what you're talking about? I am referring to that. It certainly plays into that narrative. Uh, of course, there may be other explanations for it, but this is part of a pattern of uh, Trump from the very early stages of his campaign uh, making nice with Putin and, and being unwilling to take on Russia as he has taken on many other countries, particularly some of our allies. 
Richard, I'm wondering if you could just uh, give us the perspective of uh, what it's like to be in Russia at the current uh, moment. I mean, if you go online, you can see a variety of photographs around the Internet showing a lot of food that has been banned because of Russian retaliation to Western sanctions. The food being banned is then destroyed in landfills. And indeed, even the Russian cabinet is said to consider a special agency in order to counter foreign sanctions. What are the sanctions doing to the daily lives of Russians and what do they hear about the back and forth between, because it's not just the United States and sanctions, it's many other countries. Well, first I'd, <clears throat> I'd note the sort of the little joke that was making the rounds a while back that Putin and Medvedev felt really upset about uh, you know being left out in connection with Russian sanctions. So they decided to put sanctions on Russia as well. Uh, and, uh, and that was accomplished, of course, I'm referring to what what you just mentioned, which is the restriction of imports into Russia, which is obviously very harmful to uh, to the Russian people themselves. Look, you know, Russia is a very different structure in, in nation than, than ours. is very different history. Their relationship with their government is totally different. And they, you know, as a country, they tend to think more in terms of supporting the state and that that's sort of what... The country is about rather than the more of a U.S. model where we at least historically have viewed our uh, public representatives as representing us and the, the country being about you know, the citizens. So they are generally speaking very supportive of their government and the no matter what is done in the West, the government's in an ideal position due to its control of media, etc., to present that as an attack on Russia. It's been a constant theme in Russian history. So, you know, Russia is now in a mode where, at least as I see it, they're really uh, often in, in, uh, playing uh, uh, tactics of a rogue state. And I, I don't think that's something they wanted to do back uh, even even five, six years or so ago. But I think they're pretty firmly ingrained in that now. And I, I do believe they're looking to, at some point, trade, if you will, the leverage they're gaining by playing that role to perhaps over time uh, get back into a more normal relationship in the West. But from their perspective, both the citizens and the government, they feel that we called the tune here. That would be their way of looking at it, that we've pushed them into this corner. Uh, they see their, you know, retaliation through interference in the, in the election, trying to get people more amenable to better relations with them as appropriate. Um, they're not going to admit they did it, but right. certainly they know it. Well, I, I, I do have to wonder. I mean, so the Mueller investigation and, and President Trump's relationship with Russia is one thing. Arguably, uh, some events that have been much more important to world peace is what's going on in Syria and Russia's involvement there. Uh, recently, Russia saying that perhaps it will supply Syria with state-of-the-art air defense, which has uh, rung some alarms, uh, particularly in Israel. How concerning is all of this and Russia's involvement in the Syrian conflict? Well, look, it's, it's a huge problem. I just returned from a meeting of the crisis group in uh, uh, in Berlin, where you know the subject of the Russia's involvement, both in Syria and in other parts of the world, and the ro role they're playing is is a big part of the conversation, as well as the inability of um, of the Trump administration to interact in a manner that we in the U.S. can trust and be certain what their interests are. It dramatically complicates the game. And it's truly a frightening dynamic to have, you know, our forces in such proximity with Russia, with uh, different saber rattling, you know, Trump is engaged with that. Uh, we have had instances, as you know, in the history of the Cold War, where there were 
uh, real risks of conflict, including nuclear conflict, which were averted by individuals making key decisions. There are three or four instances of that. We don't want to be in postures where uh, we're enhancing the risk of conflict. We should instead be, you know, trying to minimize those situations. And, uh, you know, I don't have a sense that Trump currently has a particular strategy in Syria. Uh, I think it's generally a PR uh, sort of play on his part. Uh, so is it something I worry about? Yes, constantly having that type of dynamic with all of our forces there. Yeah, we already had, a, uh, by the way, as you know, a situation where we ended up killing 200 uh, Russians you know, when they attacked you know, one of our you know, uh, one of our bases. That was played down by both the U.S. and Russia. Uh, but I think most of us would agree this is not a healthy situation, and we want to have some adults in the room trying to deal with that and take it out of domestic U.S. politics. I just also want to note that you are the author of uh, a new book. Uh, it is uh, and really about um, a topic that many people are interested in. It's called The Earthbound Parent, How and Why to Raise Your Little Angels Without Religion. So congratulations uh, on the production of your, of your new book about uh, science and uh, using that as a part of an educational foundation. Thanks, Pim. It is tied into these very concepts of of uh, the role, if you will, of principle over loyalty uh, and how that ties into religious upbringing. And so it does tie in, if you will, with these political discussions. But at its heart, it's a book that's, you know, suggesting to parents uh, in a gentle way that they consider the benefits of raising children, certainly without the supernatural, to be critical thinkers rather to uh, than embracing delusional concepts that can sort of set their children in the wrong direction. I want to thank you very much for joining us. So Richard thank Kahn you. is managing partner for Eurasia Advisors, uh, joining us to talk about uh, Russia. And once again, congratulations on the publication of your new book. It is entitled The Earthbound Parent, How and Why to Raise Your Little Angels Without Religion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.